Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm pretty sure this show started years and years ago. Uh, I was on Valencia Street in San Francisco with two friends. I was in one of those quirky stores, uh, and I saw a book called The Cloud Collector's Handbook. And I took it down. I think I took a picture of it with my phone to bring it back to producer Jonathan McNichol. I said, we've got to do an entire show uh, about clouds, about the aesthetics of clouds, the science of clouds. And yes, it does turn out that one of the things that makes our planet what it is, particularly if you are an extraterrestrial studying it from afar, is all that cloud stuff in the atmosphere. What's that all about? We're going to tell you right after this. That's Chris Isaac uh, singing uh, a song that perhaps um, one of our guests heard uh, Johnny Ray sing uh, many years growing up, The Little White Cloud That Cried. Uh, It's sort of about basically how we don't appreciate clouds, and it really is true. I mean, I was thinking today that if we lived on a planet that didn't have clouds and then somebody came along and introduced them and said, look, we're going to try this. You know, we're going to try having these things up in the sky. I mean, people would be, it would be like television, but better. I mean, people, there's, would, would be all that anybody talked about for like 10 years is how great clouds are. But of course, uh, like many things, we take them for granted. But maybe more than many things, they really are just around all the time, uh, showing us their, their beauty and inspiring us. Certainly, if we are um, attempting to have some kind of moment of communion with the divine, the most likely place that we are going to look is up into the clouds. We'll be talking to you a little bit about why that might be and how consistent a thing that is across traditions, too. Uh, and we're also going to be talking uh, about a little bit about the science of clouds. You'll also meet an artist who, among, who does a lot of work with clouds, including um, a project in which he has people ingest clouds uh, and taste clouds and become more one with clouds, which involves becoming one with the microbes who live in clouds. Anyway, that's all still to come. Uh, but the reason we're doing this show in large part is the work of uh, our guest, Gavin Predor-Pinney. Uh, he is the author of uh, several books about clouds. Uh, the Cloud Spotter's Guide, the Science, History, and Culture of Clouds is sitting in my hand right now. Uh, and he's 
also – he presides over uh, the uh, Cloud Appreciation Society. It was actually in a little store in San Francisco where I, I saw one of his other books and I learned that there was such a thing and it made me think we should do a show. So he's joining us from Somerset, England. He's joining us through the miracle of Skype, which is both a communication device and a chewable vitamin. Uh, Gavin Predorpini, welcome to this conversation. Hi, Colin. So you may have grown up listening to Johnny Ray sing The Little Cl- White Cloud That Cried, um, or, or not at all. Um, but it's, uh, it's certainly a very emotive song. So first of all, give us a sense. How many members are there in the Cloud Appreciation, Appreciation Society? Why does it exist? Well, we've got um, 41,000 members now, and um, they are based in about 100 countries across the world. Um, and they're all united by this belief, I like to think, which is that, um, just as you were saying at the start there, you know, the sky and the clouds are uh, an aspect of our surroundings that we uh, tend to ignore because they're always there. Um, I like to think all our members are united in the feeling and the belief that the sky and the clouds are, in fact, when you stop to think about it, one of the most dynamic and evocative and poetic aspects of nature. Um, They also are, by almost definition, by essence, they are ephemeral. Uh, They are not just here today and gone tomorrow. They're here this minute and gone the next. So it makes it it difficult to appreciate appreciate them maybe the way that we might want to. Until quite recently, it would be hard to share your cloud with anybody else. But so is the Cloud Appreciation Society a little bit the product of the digital age when we're all walking around with cameras in our pockets and the ability to push a picture of a cloud that we like a lot up onto the internet? Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, I think when you uh, see something surprising uh, in the sky, one of the first things you want to do is like talk to someone else about it or you're curious about why it looks like that. Or maybe when you see a stunning uh, sunset or sunrise, you you want to sort of share that with people. And the society started to coincide with the explosion of digital photography. That was a little bit before things really took off with smartphones, but it was when uh, digital cameras are very small and easy to carry around. Of course, once smartphones came along, that brought a whole new level. But this meant that from the start, the uh, aspect of the Cloud Appreciation Society website that really took off was the photo gallery. And because here's the thing, you know, you're walking around just minding your own business and you notice something in the sky, if you pay attention to the sky, um, uh, you see something and you just have to be there at that moment and you have to have been the person to happen to notice it. And then you have to have something with you with an easy reach to photograph it. And that's what has been the big change over the last 10 years, which I think has enabled a renaissance of interest in the clouds and we can talk about the kind of history of uh, the kind of culture around clouds in the sky but i feel that through this medium of digital photography there's been a renaissance of interest in the clouds and that is all to do with sharing people's experiences and what they've seen uh, just when they happen you know just to have the luck of seeing something unusual up there 
You know, we're going to talk uh, quite a bit in our second segment today about the science of clouds. Um, but even now, it's worth saying, I think, that there are a number of ways to go at this or maybe a, a number of levels of commitment, uh, states of commitment in which to go at this. You can simply be somebody who who likes a, and appreciates a good cloud when you see it. Or you can be somebody, and, and I think your work, Gavin, argues for this second position. You can be the kind of person who not only sees a nice cloud and likes it, but knows a little something about it. It seems as though one of the things that you want people to do uh, if they don't become sky fanatics, to use one of your phrases, is to at least n- know what you're looking at. You're going to be looking at clouds pretty much every day of your life. Um, know something about them. Am I correct that, that you're kind of lobbying for that? Sure, but it's only because it helps focus attention. Um, I mean, I don't think you need to know the names of the different clouds. You know, they've got all these Latin names, Cumulus, Cirrus, Stratus, Cumulonimbus, big storm cloud. We can talk about that, but uh, they've got these Latin names. You don't need to know them to appreciate the sky of course um and people have appreciated sky at the sky long before this system for naming the clouds was devised um but i think what's relevant here is that when you do know the names it helps to focus your attention and i think there's a value in that so to take a you know a contrasting example our daughters the seven and ten uh when i taught them some of the names of the different butterflies that just happened to see around in the summer, uh, I noticed a a shift in their attention to when one comes past because they were just curious as to which one it was. They knew some of the names, tortoiseshell or the painted lady or, you know, the the peacock butterfly. And they were just curious, is it one of those or is it one of them? Uh, And so the, 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 what the name was actually, of course, is just a human construct. We want to give things names. We want to put them into orders. We want to put them into pigeonholes. But the the secondary effect of that is that it focuses one's attention and uh, it makes you curious. And I think those, as I hope we'll explore through the show today, are valuable things in themselves. And maybe an example of this would be good. So all of these things in your book, I'm going to give you an example and let you explain it. I was unfamiliar with the term sundog. So here's just one of about 100,000 things that clouds can do. Tell people what a sundog is. So this is um, what you generally call an optical effect. It is um, a, a bright patch of sunlight that is the result of the sun shining through a cloud. And it has to be a cloud consisting of ice crystals. So the low clouds are made of water droplets and the high clouds are made of ice crystals and the mid clouds are often a mixture of one or the other. Um, So when you have high clouds made of ice crystals, they can, if they're a certain shape, and they're formed in a certain way. They can behave like tiny prisms. You know, the sunlight can actually shine through the ice crystal. We think of them as, uh, we think of ice crystals um, as like those kind of cartoons of, of snow when you, you see the dendrite, the stellar dendrite with the six spikes and all the mm-hmm. um, filigrees. But not all ice crystals are that, sh- are that shape. Sometimes if they're grown rather slowly, they can form uh, like a, a, a hexagonal plate or a column with hexagonal sides to it. And these 
if they're optically pure, which means a lot of sunlight can shine through, they can act like prisms. And the sunlight, uh, when the sun's low in the sky, shining through one of these ice crystal clouds, which consists of hexagonal plates, which are all happen to be drifting and falling like autumn leaves, so kind of horizontally as they fall, those are the conditions that can produce a sun dog. And it looks like a, point, a sort of bright point of light on the same level as the sun. If you were to stretch your arm out and stick your thumb and your little finger as far apart as possible, put your thumb near the sun as it's low on the horizon, where your little finger is, that's around about where you would see a sun dog. And you can see one on both sides of the sun if you have ice crystal clouds in the right area of the sky. And they're just one of, as you say, the many beautiful optical effects that clouds can create and which quite often people miss. Right. We're not going to be able to give you more than just the tiniest taste of these things. Uh, uh, and to get more of them, to round out your understanding, you'll want to be getting the Cloud Spotter's Guide, the Science, History, and Culture of Clouds uh, by Gavin Peterpenny, who we're talking to right now. You learn so much more about them. But So we know also that clouds uh, have all kinds of interesting roles in both religion and in history. And sometimes those two things combine or coincide. So we know it's it's a historical uh, fact beyond dispute that at some point uh, Const the Emperor Constantine was looking up into the sky. Uh, he saw uh, not only a cross in the sky, but spelled out in the sky uh, in hoc signo winkus. Um, so uh, if you know more about clouds, I guess, uh, Gavin, you might have at least some way of speculating about how such a thing might have been accomplished up there in the sky. Well, I mean, you can find... Uh, some descriptions of Constantine's um, vision in the sky, there's some similarities between that and some of these optical effects um, of which the sun dog that we just discussed is one. There are other ones where you have a, a ring that ra that's a right around the, the sun called a halo, um, 22 degrees halo. Uh, you get ones where you have kind of arcs of light that maybe intersect with the top of the halo. And, you know, if you were, if you happen to see one of these optical effects in the sky just as you were entering battle um you really couldn't uh, back at uh, you know in those days you couldn't help but think that this is some sort of sign and it's telling you something uh, and you know so i think it's possible that the vision he saw in the sky is an example of one of these uh, optical effects you know when you're when you're young when you're a kid you look up uh, physically look upwards to your parents don't you and you, you know when you're a toddler um and they are when you're that age they are like gods to you um and i think maybe that is one reason why we have as we've grown to become adults throughout human existence we've looked upwards to our gods um and of course when you look up to the gods what do you see well you you see the clouds so you naturally whether it's intentional or not you associate the clouds with the gods and you associate this the they are like the expressions on the atmosphere um and so it's it's kind of natural to think that the the images you see up there the shapes you see or perhaps the these strange light effects which you'd never noticed before are some message from the gods um you know there's 
that uh, Victorian um, art critic and essayist called John Ruskin, and he said, whereas the medievals never painted a cloud but with the purpose of placing an angel upon it, mm-hmm. we have no more uh, belief, uh, we have no belief that the clouds contain more than so many inches of rain or hail. And so there's been a shift, of course, as we've entered a more secular society with our, our relationship with the sky. Right. I think uh, Rene Descartes, as you point out, uh, is a little bit more on the side that you described uh, in, in the the first part of your comments. He says, since one must turn his eyes toward heaven to look at them, we think of them as the throne of God. Uh, that makes me that makes me hope that if I can explain their nature, one will easily believe that it is possible in some manner to find the causes of everything wonderful about Earth. That could just perfectly sum up the Cloud Appreciation Society's uh, feelings uh, about that. But it's also, I think, one of the reasons that that they occur as they do in the iconography of divinity is we're always sort of thinking about what is between earth and heaven. And so I think one of the reasons that we typically, even cartoonishly, see angels sitting on clouds uh, in in their halos is that angels also are kind of the intermediaries between earth and heaven. They're the things, the beings that can travel back and forth. So it kind of makes sense that the cloud layer is, is where we look when we're looking for divinity. Yeah, and also they, you know, when it comes to religious painting, it's rather convenient to have something to sit the angels upon. Um, you know, they're like the sofas of the saints, the clouds. Uh, and I lived in Rome at one point, and I used to enjoy walking and looking at the frescoes in the churches and the Baroque frescoes. That was a period when you had these rather uh, they weren't exactly very realistic clouds. They, they looked very, very solid. They were cumulus clouds, which are the clumpy ones that you see on a sunny day. But these were really kind of, they, they, they looked um, uh, kind of cartoonish. Um, and they, uh, But, you know, reclining upon them would be the apostles looking down on the congregation below in the church. And so they have this um, very useful, uh, both symbolic, but also just useful kind of role of being something to put. So you don't have to have everyone floating. Uh, you can have something for, for, for the, the the kind of divine characters to be resting upon. I do like sofas of the saints. Yeah, and, and I think... Um uh, the clouds kind of um, play the role in the Bible. I mean, well, first of all, we have to say the Bible was written for the most part in and about the desert. So clouds are going to be pretty good things anyway. Uh, you talk in your book about sun fascists, the people who basically think that not a cloud in the sky is the absolute the perfect description of the perfect day. But if you live in the Sinai Desert, eh, maybe that's not such a good day. You feel pretty good about clouds. So it's not too surprising that the language of the Bible, the iconography of the Bible, um, it you know, Clouds are are pretty good. Yeah, sure. And uh, you do see that even today with um, the cultural, culturally different attitudes towards clouds. So here in Britain, people feel that we've got so many clouds, (laughs) people feel there are too many of them. Uh, and so, you know, we have these English phrases when someone's got a cloud hanging over them, it's a negative. When there's a cloud on the horizon, you know, there's something bad in store. But there is a, an Arabic phrase that is used in Iran and Iraq for when, the, uh, when someone is lucky or they're blessed, 
then they say uh, his sky is always filled with clouds. Mm. And, you know, there's obviously just a kind of flip reaction to the cloud. clouds kind of offer the um, possibility of rain, even if they don't necessarily very often actually generate it. And they have this relationship or this association with kind of fecundity and with life. You see the same thing in India with the their feelings about storm clouds. So storm clouds are generally perhaps seen as rather ominous things uh, in many parts of the world. Here in Britain, I know in parts of the States, people obviously have to be very careful of large storm clouds. But uh, in India, they are the first sign of the monsoon. And with the monsoon, after the baking heat of the summer, the monsoon brings the gardens spring to life. The peacocks go into their mating season. And so the, the, those storm clouds are the kind of heralds of this regeneration and rebirth of nature. So they have very different sort of associations. And it's interesting, the cultural differences. Yes, unless you are a practitioner of Raja Yoga, where uh, all of your passions are meant to be subdued, in which case, as I know from reading your book, uh, clouds are symbolic of maya, of distortion, of getting lost. So that would be an instance of, of clouds in India maybe not being such a great thing. We have to take a break. I could talk to you about uh, clouds and Raja Yoga much more, but I'm feeling the sting of the lash of producer Jonathan McNichol, who wants to keep us on track here. We'll take a break, and we'll come back with more clouds. We also want to talk very much now about the science of clouds. Uh, with us still is Gavin Preter Pinney. He is the founder of the Cloud Appreciation Society, the author of the Cloud Spotter's Guide, and the Cloud Collector's Handbook. That was the book that I saw in San Francisco that got us uh, thinking about all this. Uh, and now joining us also uh, is David Romps, except that I pushed the wrong button there. David Romps, uh, assistant professor of Earth and Planetary Science at uh, University of California, Berkeley. And he runs a research group there that studies clouds and climate. Welcome to our conversation, David Romps. Hi, Colin. It's good to be here. Thank you. So maybe we could begin. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about clouds as if we know exactly what they are. I'm not sure that we act, that I anyway absolutely do know where they are, what they are. So, so what is a cloud? What's it made out of? Well, uh, let me put it this way. So, uh, if you cup your hands together, and I don't recommend that if you're driving, but if you have your hands free and you you cup your hands together, you're now holding all of the ingredients that are needed to make a cloud. All right, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. So yeah, great. So you're holding there uh, air, and about one percent of that air is water vapor, and that's needed to make, of course, the liquid cloud drops uh, in a cloud. But also in your hands are thousands of little floating particles. These are natural and man-made pieces of microscopic junk uh, that serve as locations onto which that water vapor can condense to make a cloud drop. Each little particle becomes one cloud drop, 
And that happens if that air gets sufficiently cold. And these little small particles are called cloud condensation nuclei. They're made up of a variety of things from uh, sulfur compounds and clay and soot and even things like pollen or bacteria. And uh, so if you cool that air in your hand sufficiently, the water vapor will condense onto those particles. That will make cloud drops. And we'll see that as a white haze, and that is a cloud. So in, in a sense... Um well, maybe this is uh, an overstatement, but but in a sense, clouds kind of are the weather, right? I mean, it's kind of at least that's how the how the weather is visible to us. Yes and no. In fact, that, that's a question that atmospheric scientists have grappled with for a long time. Basically, to what extent are clouds a driver of weather versus clouds being a byproduct of weather? So, where it is warm, like in the tropics or in summertime Connecticut, rain clouds really are the driver. Each rain cloud is like a piston of air rising up through the atmosphere. And in that piston, instead of generating heat by burning gasoline like in a car's engine, these cloudy pistons are generating heat by condensing water vapor. And it may sound like that, you know, how can that generate very much heat? But if you think about being in a kitchen and you're trying to boil off, I mean, you wouldn't intentionally do this, but let's say you, you think about how much energy it would take to, in, to boil off all the water in a pot. It's an incredible amount of energy. You've got to leave that pot on the stove for a long time. Well, when a cloud condenses that same amount of water vapor, makes the same amount of water as rain, that heat is returned to the cloud. And so if we just consider a, a, a relatively small storm cloud, say the size of a typical college campus, and if it's raining heavily, then that small rain cloud is generating heat by condensation of water vapor at a rate that is measured in gigawatts. So it's generating heat at the same rate as a large nuclear power plant operating at full throttle. So rain clouds in warm parts of the Earth really are the engines of the atmosphere and are the drivers of weather in the sense that they're setting the temperature of the atmosphere and where the air is rising up in the clouds, they're sucking in air along the surface, generating the winds. But in cold parts of the Earth, the air is so cold that it cannot hold very much water vapor. So when clouds form, uh, they are kind of starved of their fuel, and there's very little heat that they can release. Uh, so they're more along for the ride there. Uh, where the air rises, you may form a cloud, but there's not enough heat release to actually then turn around and drive the motion. Uh, so uh, it, it varies from, say, the tropics or summertime mid-latitudes up to the poles, and this question of the transition from where clouds are really the driver of the weather to where clouds are more the byproduct is an area that we're, we're still struggling with in atmospheric science. And one of the interesting things about all this is the number of areas that, that maybe science is still struggling with. And so Gavin Preterpini, as somebody who was really kind of maybe even trying to become a bridge between the scientific community and the lay cloud appreciation community, did you, do you feel now as though you have a pretty good grasp of, of the science of clouds, or are there still questions in your mind, Gavin? Well, God, there are always questions in my mind. I mean, what, the way David uh, described uh, clouds there was beautiful and um, really clear. Uh, I think one of these strange and mysterious things about clouds is, uh, from a lay person's point of view, is the fact that um, they're sort of one minute they're here and the next minute they're gone. And this relates to the fact that water, which is a very surprising thing it's a, it's a unique 
substance because it's readily found within the conditions of uh, uh, around earth it's readily found in liquid solid and gaseous states uh, and it can change very relatively easily from one to the other well of course one of those states the gas one um, is the one that's invisible the droplets which are low clouds are made of water droplets those we see and we they're, they're visible the way they scatter the light they appear white uh, the high clouds made of ice crystals again we can see they don't scatter the light so efficiently they're kind of translucent but they're visible uh, but the water vapor is a gas and we can't see it and yet because it can change from what liquid to gas to solid so well water that's what gives clouds this um, magical uh, quality uh, of appearing and disappearing and makes, makes them such rich metaphors for people. Um, so, you know, that, that I would say is the kind of metaphors for, for, for um, poets and uh, um, uh, inspiration for painters. So that, I would say, is the coming from the lay perspective. But, you know, from my point of view, of course, I, there, there's a million things we don't know about clouds, especially the fact that, um, you, it's very difficult to contain a bit of the atmosphere, uh, which makes it difficult to kind of... Uh, David will be able to <laughs> say whether this is right or not, but it makes it very difficult to, to sort of limit your variables, and that makes it difficult to study what's happening in the atmosphere. David Roms, I'm going to read your words back to you. We don't understand many basic things about clouds. We don't know why clouds rise at the speeds they do. We don't know why they are the sizes they are. We lack a fundamental theory for what is a very peculiar case of fluid flow. There's a lot of theory that remains to be done. I found that that really start startling in some ways. I mean, I know that I don't know anything about clouds, but I've probably I figured that there were probably people who knew everything about clouds. It sounds like there's a lot still left to know. Yeah, you would think that we would know more than we do, and we certainly do know a lot. Uh, clouds have been a subject of scientific inquiry for over 200 years, ever since Luke Howard's 1803 paper that gave the nomenclature for clouds that formed the basis for uh, the, the chapters in, in Gavin's book. And, um, and I would say that you know, modern cloud research really got going in the 1940s, where we started making a, a big investment in cloud research perhaps most notably with the Thunderstorm project in the 1940s, taking advantage of surplus fighter planes from the war and then armoring them up with uh, sheet metal and doing something that sounds crazy, intentionally flying them through thunderstorms to measure speeds and dynamics and temperature and things like that. And yet, still, despite that 70 years of, of modern cloud research, they're like you say, or I guess like you say I said, uh, many questions we don't have answers to. Uh, what sets the rising speeds, what sets the size of the clouds, and another question is like why storm clouds tend to uh, clump up together. Now, it's relatively easy to measure and observe these things and even to make beautiful simulations and animations of them using supercomputers, but to understand them, to understand the physical fundamental processes that are driving these things, that's, that's much harder. Uh, clouds are what we might call a turbulence in a stratified fluid with phase changes coupled to radiation. It's uh, not your typical benchtop uh, fluids experiment. Like Gavin said, it's very hard to set this up in a laboratory. And already we know that turbulence is a notoriously difficult problem in fluids. People struggle with this when they're designing planes or when they're designing engines. But with clouds, we have turbulence that then leads to these phase changes, water vapor to these liquid drops that then injects heat into the fluid and generates more turbulence. And then the clouds that are made 
are coupled to the radiation, the visible light that we see and the invisible infrared light that we cannot see. Uh, and that light, that radiation, is ultimately driving and making the clouds in the first place. So you've got this, this circle of, of coupled processes that makes it very difficult to uh, tease apart answers to these questions. And, and David, even more dauntingly, uh, the, as soon as you start understanding well, water clouds, uh, there are going to be probes coming back from other planets where the clouds aren't even really made of water, right? There are planets where there are cloud systems. They, they seem recognizably clouds, but they're not necessarily made uh, out of water. That's right. These other planets really stretch our imagination and test our fundamental understanding of how clouds work. Uh, one good example is uh, Titan, one of Saturn's moons, where the atmosphere is made of most of the same stuff that's, that's here, so nitrogen, uh, but instead of water, there's methane serving as the fluid that condenses and makes clouds and, and rains out. Uh, so if we understand our own atmosphere well and our own clouds well, if we had these theories, which I'd argue are, are still lacking, uh, we could then apply those to other systems like Titan or uh, Jupiter is another good example with the recent arrival of Juno there. Uh, if there is sufficient water in the uh, Jovian atmosphere, then perhaps there are clouds there that are similar to the clouds we see here. Maybe they operate similarly, but there would be important differences because of instead of nitrogen being the, the dominant gas, you've got a lighter hydrogen atmosphere. And so now water vapor, that invisible gas, is now heavier than the surrounding air, and that could really change how the clouds operate. And in fundamental ways. So thinking about these other planets really opens up a lot of opportunities for, for testing our theories and developing new ones. All right. Well, uh, when the answers come, I'm very confident that they're going to come from the Romps group at UC Berkeley. Uh, they study clouds and climate. David Romps has been with us right now. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. Gavin and I are going to listen to a short conversation I had uh, with the artist uh, Carolina Sobeka uh, about her art with clouds. And then we are going to finish our conversation about clouds. But now the only blood Carolina Sobeka is an interdisciplinary artist and designer whose work has focused repeatedly on clouds. One of her projects, Clouds from Both Sides, is juxtaposed images of clouds photographed from the human point of view, from the ground, while simultaneously being photographed by a weather satellite passing over the same clouds. Another of Sobeka's projects is the Cloud Machine, which is a, quote, personal device for the modification of the atmosphere. It's a geoengineering cloud-making machine that's 
sent up to the atmosphere in a weather balloon to make small temporary clouds. This has both artistic significance and also significance for the future of the planet because this is maybe one of the ways we'll have to deal with global warming at some point. Anyway, we talked to Carolina Sobeka by Skype, which is both a delicious multivitamin and a form of communication from Warsaw, Poland, about another of her projects, our favorite of her projects, Thinking Like a Cloud. In this one, Sobeka feeds clouds with the microbes inside them to human beings. So this is another device that's sent up into the atmosphere on the weather balloon. It collects cloud samples. So um, cloud droplets condense on, on the wings of this device and kind of flow down into a sample container. Then we recover it and the sample of the cloud is analyzed for its chemical biological content and it's also ingested by the human volunteers <laughs> uh, in in uh, so which turned into a cloud tasting events so in these events we we both have people uh, ingest the the cloud but also we track the history of the cloud air masses from which the sample came from and see sort of geographically over what areas they moved over and what kind of human activity we can connect it to because you know every human activity leaves its traces in the air. So can, um, can you give an example of that? So let's imagine that I'm ingesting a, a particular cloud. So you, you'd be able to tell me what kind of thing about that cloud, for example, that this cloud, some of this cloud used to be in Madagascar or that kind of thing? Or Yeah, the, the history of the air mass can be actually tracked fairly accurately for up to something like 72 hours. So we it can tell you that it came from over the polar region or, you know, over France or Germany and also at what altitude more or less um, this air moved at. So there's a little bit of the artistic license there because we can clearly track it very, very precisely. But I think that's that's still quite amazing connection to the actual geography of the movement of the air. Now, the important thing or an important thing about what we're saying is that these clouds contain other living organisms, right? That that microbes, um, and this is something that really we've only begun to discover to a fuller extent quite recently, that, that there are tens of thousands of feet above the earth in these clouds are, are living microbes. So what role do they play in thinking like a cloud? Well, I was really fascinated when I found out about the, the microorganisms in the clouds, and they're considered a microbiome of the air, potentially. I think th this is a fairly new field of study, but that's, that's one of the suggestions there. So that means that they're responsible for processes that are sort of inherent to the host. Just You've probably heard about the human microbiome, right. in which the microbes you know, are responsible for our digestion and so on. And similarly, in the the atmosphere, the atmospheric microbiome might be responsible for more of the processes that we think are inherent to the atmosphere. And so by ingesting the cloud, uh, since the human body is really something like 95% of the cells in the human body are actually not human. They belong to the, our microflora that's in our gut and our, on our skin and so on. And so when we ingest the, the cloud, uh, we actually combine the cloud microbiome with our own. 
And thinking about a human in terms of the sort of multiplicity of the organisms of the biology that actually make us up, that contributes to sort of our behavior and potentially even to our psychological traits. So that's a, a way to become a cloud in in very literal sense, partly cloud. So the the idea here is that well, I think. For one thing, I'm really interested in, in the language of the cloud has become, um, or the language of that we describe the air and the movement of the gases, you know, the physics of the gases in the atmosphere, the process of the atmosphere, became a way to make concrete or make theorizable all these kind of immaterial processes that have to do with the infosphere, right, that surrounds us, the flows of data and data storage and so on that carry a similar immaterial imaginary to it as um, the the air. <laughs> so we use this as a metaphor, so we not only kind of think about the air more, but we also think with the air, with the metaphors of the air. In thinking like a cloud, uh, this is a way in which we literally can think like a cloud by becoming part cloud, but also uh, it becomes a metaphor for uh, today's thinking about the infosphere. Right. I mean, I think we think of ourselves and clouds as having completely alien existences that are are disconnected from one another. Obviously, if you ingest a cloud, uh, you're kind of tearing down that barrier a little bit. I guess if I could just ask a, ask a practical question and go back to the microbes, I, I, I'd be happy to drink or otherwise ingest a cloud that was just water vapor. I'd be a little nervous if there's some nasty old microbes uh, in it. There's lots of microbes in the air. Part of what, what I'm interested in to sort of turn people's attention to the materiality of the air, because it is something that we share all the time. You know, we all breathe in and out the same medium that connects us all. And, you know, it's only when we start thinking about the tangible sort of matter of it, then we, we start thinking, um, you know, feeling like we are connected in this way and potentially be worried about it. But uh, there are some quite really fascinating microbes there, if you like to know more about them. Well, yeah, give me, tell me about a fascinating microbe. I'm always up for hearing about that. <laughs> well, one of them that I'm looking at right now is Pseudomonas syringae. It's one of the a class of microbes that can nucleate ice. So it can freeze water at temperatures higher than, than it would freeze normally. So when it's in the clouds, it turns water into ice, which creates precipitation. Um, So it creates rain, and then that's how it gets back to the surface. And then uh, it lives on vegetation, and uh, there's a cycle that takes it back into the clouds. So, uh, Carolina, if we were to add a quantum physicist to this conversation, first of all, it'd get really complicated, but, uh, you know, he or she might be saying, well, in some ways what you're talking about, in a way, is that the differences between one thing and another are are not as hard and fast and walled off as maybe we like to think that you know in many ways at the quantum level it may seem as though most of the way that we distinguish one piece of reality from another is through some kind of pattern recognition that's more dependent on the observer than it is on the physical reality so uh, and i don't mean to lead you there if that's not where you're going but it seems as though in in messing around with clouds in this way you're kind of doing that a little bit sort of saying well are, are we really different from clouds or do we just think we're different from clouds? Uh, yeah, definitely. I would be, uh, I'm interested 
and, and changing our perception of ourselves and nature and in particular, yeah, exactly what you what you just suggested to by trying to define this border between us and the environment to really point that it's it's quite fluid and much much less rigid than we think and to turn us from a very anthropocentric thinking to a slightly i guess broader way of thinking because yes the more and, and i think the cloud observation project tries to do that a little bit as well because the more we try to describe clouds the more we describe everything else and the more we describe you know ourselves we end up describing the weather for example mm. so uh, yeah i think that um we are much more like clouds uh, than than we think we are what, what do clouds taste like does one cloud taste different from another cloud they actually do yes they do taste <laughs> different right because yeah i like a, a cloud with the flutterings of edam uh cheese in it so um <laughs> So, uh, so I guess the, the last thing I want to ask you about is, I mean, obviously, you've already talked about sort of why clouds, but I know from your website that, that you think one of the things that maybe, I mean, if a bunch of extraterrestrials, if a bunch of aliens who were traveled all over the universe and they visited 20 different planets and they were trying to have a, a conversation about, you know, something that happened during their travels and one of them was talking about our planet, that extraterrestrial might say, you know, the one with the clouds, the one that had the clouds. Um, is that for you? Is that kind of what Earth is? It's like it's the place that has the clouds. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the Earth from space, I mean, it's not terrain, it's not ocean, it's not Earth, it's really clouds is what you see. And I think, uh, you know, clouds play a much bigger role in uh, in our lives, in sort of regulating earthly processes than we think. So. My interest in clouds in general is kind of based on, on one of the quotes by I found early on by Descartes, which said, if I can understand clouds, I can understand everything, <laughs> which uh, uh, I think is a really nice way of saying, of both connecting the sort of physical complexity of the physics of the atmosphere, but also the fact that they're kind of a symbol of something ungraspable for us. So Carolina Sobeko, it just sounds fascinating, and your art and your, or your thinking is fascinating as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, that was uh, taped uh, yesterday, uh, which is why we're not talking about it in the middle of it. Uh, Gavin uh, Peter Pinney is so with me. Before I bring him back, uh, let me just say that today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol. We have Betsy Kaplan on the board. Uh, the part of Bill Curry today was played by Juliette Binoche. You see what I did there? She's in the clouds of Sils Maria. All right. So we're back uh, with uh, Gavin. Uh, and we got a tweet from uh, somebody named Red Menace who said that she uh, had seen, uh, let's see, oh, I keep, I keep losing it, that she had seen in eastern Connecticut a bevy of mamatus clouds. Uh, I, I saw a bevy of mamatus clouds in southeastern Connecticut once. It was the only time I've ever seen them. So she not only knows that she's seen mamatus clouds, but she knows whether she's seen them on other occasions or not. Uh, first of all, tell us what a mamatus cloud would be. So mamatus is also known as mama. Um, in fact, the more official term is mama, and that comes from the Latin for udders. So these clouds look like pouches uh, that hang from the underside of a layer of cloud. Um, and when you see dramatic examples, and they really look dramatic, they look like um, 
you know, sort of the, something from Independence Day. Uh, you get these uh, these pouches hanging down, and sometimes if the sun is low on the horizon, you uh, it, it strikes them with shade on one side. It looks amazing. These clouds can form uh, in the vicinity of storms. So a large cumulonimbus storm cloud spreads out at the top with this kind of canopy above, and at the back of the storm, so when it's moving away from you, uh, is where you can sometimes see these mama or mamata's clouds so although it looks like it's about to be some huge downpour upon them actually you're usually looking at the storm when it's passed or it's raining over somewhere else when you see these dramatic clouds and the re- one of the reasons I asked this, we're almost out of time, just a couple of minutes left here. But um, you know, one thing that Red Menace could have done was installed on her iPhone your Cloud Spotter app. Explain how that works. In other words, you, you see a cloud and, and what do you do if you have this app? So you um, can use the uh, the kind of if reference images and stuff like that to work out what cloud it is. And when you take a picture, you submit it. And the interesting thing is you hear back within a day or two whether you got the cloud right. And that is because members of the Cloud Appreciation Society, our cloud experts, uh, get together and look online at the website. And we uh, say yes, no, yes, no, and tell people whether they got them right. You hear back, and if you've spotted a rare cloud you get uh, more stars than if you spotted a common cloud so it is a way to kind of play a game but also learn about the sky at the same time is it always an open and shut case uh, what, what a cloud is or are there arguments that break out Oh, fierce arguments. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's, it's a gray area, excuse the pun. Uh, and it's because the uh, it really this classifying of clouds is all about us humans. It's all our, it's our desire to put these ever changing, ever varied, uh, ever metamorphosing chaotic uh, forms of the sky into boxes, into compartments, into groups. And, of course, they're changing the whole time. They never really fit. Uh, so it's it's the human urge to classify. And that means there's always going to be examples that are, you know, could it be this or could it be that? It's why you have to have people in the background. All right. And one of the people will be Gavin Predor-Penny. He is the founder of the Cloud Appreciation Society, the author of, among other books, The Cloud Spotter's Guide, The Science, History and Culture of Clouds. If you want to enter his world, uh, we can show you how to do it. Uh, Check our Facebook page later and check us out at WNPR.org. The whole show will be up there with its audio and anything else we can provide you with to make your life uh, more wonderful and inspiring, at least in terms of its relationship with clouds. Oh, yeah.